UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, Howling in the Street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. And I think we're recording. Hey, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have with me uh, Brian Allen. He's back with an amazing book. It's 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 an insane it, it about secrets and mysteries, aliens and ghosts. It's called Book of Secrets by Brian Allen, uh, the internationally acknowledged paranormal researcher and editor of Phenomena magazine. Brian presents many puzzles and enigmas that have confronted human race since the beginning of time. The author considers everything from Vimanas in ancient India that seemed to be flying on war machines to actually what occurred now, apparently, the, the abandoned base at Montauk. He also seeks truth about what could be who built the pyramids, or who recently descended from ancient Martians, and are the two connected. He also asks who are the watchers. They were connected to the Nephilim. Is time truly impossible? Are UFOs and ETs actually demonic in nature? And what is its hidden Vatican secret archives? All this and much, much more is examined in the pages of the book. Book of Secrets, Aliens, Ghosts, and Ancient Mysteries. And uh, a little bit more about my guest, Brian Allen, has had a lifelong interest in all kinds of things, the paranormal and occult phenomena. Although he had initially confined his interest to the subject to a passive role, including study via books, his past 45 years he has become involved with active hands-on basis. And uh, he's, he's an editor for Phenomena Magazine, and uh, he's a uh, Privilege to receive Strange Phenomena Investigations prestigious Tartan Skull Award for services to ufology and the paranormal world in Scotland. And I want to give him a big welcome to the show. Brian, thank you for coming back on my show. How are you? Hey, Rob, I'm really good. Thank you for having me back on again. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. So um, where, where did you want to get started with this? I, I, I picked out the chapters that you... Uh, I listened to another podcast you did too to get ready for this. And uh, mm -hmm. one thing that you talked about was uh, the Collins Elite. Um, oh, yeah, can you yeah, talk yeah. about that a little bit? Uh, the Collins Elite, yeah. Very, very strange organization indeed. In fact, I had to check by facts if this organization ever in fact did exist. But the thing is, once you start delving into the background of the intelligence services, irrespective of what country you're in, you tend to meet a lot of closed doors, you know, which, which is very sad. But I managed to speak to Nick Redfern, who looked into this quite deeply, and I was assured by Nick that um, the Collins Elite did exist. don't know if they still do, but they certainly did for quite for a number of years, around the 1950s, 60s, and they're about. Now, the Collins Elite were many, many, well, the Robertson panel was an example of this, which was basically a panel set up to debunk the existence of UFOs entirely and say that it was just your imagination, these things aren't real. And it was just a case of people used to think that um, that 
the military in the US and, and I guess in the UK as well were using UFOs to hide their own advanced technology. I've now come to the conclusion that they're actually using technology to, to, to hide the existence of UFOs. It's, it's completely the other way around, you know. But the, the actual, I mentioned the Robertson panel, well, that was one organisation, but the Collins elite were another but different because the Collins elite were set up, as I said, in, in the, the mid-1950s or there, but into the 1960s. Now, the name came from the, the you know, from the, the name of one of the people who were involved in the actual organisation, the Collins elite. But they had an agenda, and it wasn't a particularly good agenda. Their agenda was to find that UFOs were not, in fact, spacecraft, if you like, from other galaxies, or other realities, they were in fact demonic, and they were um, crewed by demons. Although later verses of this sort of came out with the idea that they were crewed by angels, but basically it was a, it was an, an evangelical Christian organisation had set up the, the this pre pre existing agenda that they were not to find that these things were in, in any way nuts and bolts machines. They were, if you like, as you as for you could argue, spiritual. They were, in fact, satanic uh, vehicles for, for for demons from hell. And their idea was to completely subvert the human race. I think that is absolutely disgraceful. But uh, nevertheless, that's what they were all about, as far as, I can, as far as I can understand. Do you think they're still pushing their agenda today? Yeah, I, th I certainly do, because the idea that, that um, UFO, well, in some, <laughs> I better clarify that a little bit, because I'll say that in some agendas or, or there are some groups within the ufo community that still maintain that um ufos or, or, or alien spacecraft are demonic in nature they never let up on that now i don't know why they would even bother going down that road but nevertheless there is um they do and uh, and yeah they still do they still do although it's getting increasingly smaller yeah, one one of the people you talk about in your book that I thought was really interesting, I had to bring up was John Alexander. Did you? Mm. Yeah, oh John, oh John. Yeah, well, you tend to find a lot of shows. Uh, you know, we have, we have a channel over here called the uh, called Bravo, and they show a lot of have a lot of you know special, fairly specialized programs on it. And whenever John Alexander crops up, you can guarantee that something special is going to come out of this because. Colonel Alexander, or former Colonel Alexander, was involved in all sorts of stuff. He, he was involved in Stargate, for example. He, he was part and parcel of that. He was also involved with the Hutchison effect, which was the, which was about the um, the discoveries or the last discoveries made by a guy called John Hutchison in Canada. But uh, but uh, John Alexander was also involved with that. He was also his own, if you like, claim to fame was in non-lethal weapons, particularly a device called sticky foam. The idea was he just pointed these hoses at the enemy, pulled the trigger, and they squirted out this this gunge that hit them and hardened them and incapacitated them, basically. But, um, but Mr. Alexander has been involved in all sorts of strange things, everything from mind control, as I say, to non-lethal weapons, and, if you like, parapsychological um, devices as well. He's been involved in all sorts of stuff, that guy. Yeah. Well, well, that makes me think of something else you talk about in your book, which is psychic warfare, which is, yeah. I think, is really prevalent nowadays. Like, I think mm. that's happening a lot more than we think, right? I mean, would yeah, you say yeah. 
I, I would I would say you're right on the nail there because it tends to be that what the US does, you tend to find that the UK does about six years later. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> I've got a daughter of the cold here. Um, and yeah, that I know that, the, in fact, I knew the guy, that his name just got, his name just went, but he was, if you like, involved with the UK's uh, version of um, things like Stargate. And he was, uh, I suppose, that our version of John Alexander to some degree, but but psychotronic warfare um, comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. I mean, everything from things like the men who stare at goats, you know, where the idea was to stop someone's heart by actually thinking about it or kill them by just thinking about it. Make no mistake about it, these things have been attempted. Now, whether or not they were successful is a moot point, but um, officially these sort of projects were all shut down. But I'm pretty sure that... Um, if there was any success and, and, you know, and that they were getting this to work, at least at some level, they wouldn't shut it down, you know, entirely. They'd say it was shut down, change the name and, and fund it under another another project. So I'm pretty sure that's still running as well. Yeah, it seems like what they do is they, they say that they, these programs shut down. Like, for example, like the U.S. remote viewing program. They mm, said they mm, stopped that. Mm, I have a feeling that just goes black, like it turns into a black project. Do you oh, think for that's sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I wouldn't argue with that at all. I think you're absolutely right, Rob. Um, anything that works, it, I can't say entirely blame any intelligence gathering unit or any any form of weapon that, that is going to be of use to a country. That it, I suppose you could argue it's pragmatism, that, that if it works, they'll use it, irrespective of what it is. Uh, yeah, yeah, they will use it. Yeah. Um, well, one thing that you talk about that's really important, I thought it was in the book, was the Vatican archives, like uh, oh, yeah. whatever they have down there, whatever they're storing down there. What, what's going on with that? Well, bear in mind that the Catholic Church was initially founded by, well, we're going to talk about this, we're going to touch on that right now, by St. Peter. I think that was around AD 65, but it was certainly way, way, way back millennia ago. But the actual secret archive has been getting built, I would say, for about 1,500 years or thereabout. And it's not, some of it will be digitized, I guess, but there are there are miles and miles of shelves, okay, containing ancient manuscripts of going way back, like I say, 1,500 years, whatever. Now, some of them, it's said in a sort of jocular fashion, some of them are basically just shopping lists or laundry lists, if you want, but... That's not entirely the case at all, because amongst other things um, in the archive, that there will be information that could bring the Catholic Church crashing down. In fact, I think it could pretty well destroy all religion, and because I think it will reveal religion, what religion, religion is actually based upon. But I'll we'll, we'll come back to that. In fact, remind me if I don't. But remind me that I just said I'll come back to it. But as far as what is what is in the actual archive themselves, well. It's claimed that the bones of St. Peter, and I'm going to take a drink, sorry. <coughs> That's fine. Now, I got this, this tickly cough about a couple of days ago, just can't shake it. But um, the bones <coughs> the bones of St. Peter are supposed to be in the archive. Now, they, they have been seen, I can't remember which pope, it's one of the recent popes, he sort of authenticated them on his entire, I don't know how he did it, but he authenticated them because they're too old, apparently. There's about seven fragments of bone. 
and they are buried. They're, they're rightly buried, properly buried in, in, within the Vatican itself as the bones of St. Peter, but they were too old to get any, any DNA from. So they just had to, sort of, I guess, say that that's what they were because they were found in the Vatican. Excuse me again. <coughs> uh, um, so that's one of the things. That one of the other things supposed to be there is is the document bearing the third secret of Fatima. Now I know that one of the popes recently, within the last 10, 20 years or so, they, they brought out the first two first two secrets. Of I'm so sorry, man. <coughs> the, um, so sorry about that. That's okay. But, they brought out um, Secrets 1 and 2, and they were all read out and stuff. But eventually they said, OK, we'll fess up, we'll bring out the third secret of Fatima. And it was pretty dire, I suppose, because it, it foresaw the death of a pope and all the rest of it. But I think the real third secret of Fatima was never released, because I think what it contained were even more dire. I think it, it was actually predicting the end of the world. And the church would obviously part and parcel of it. So it wasn't really in their interest to, to read all this stuff out because it's only going to make their own position even more tenuous. And you don't want to be upsetting people, especially millions of people that know they're going to be dying if it ever happened. Because I don't know if there's even a date set for that, but we're certainly supposedly in the third secret of Fatima. Now, one of the most strange things that's supposed to be buried there are the remains or, the, or the, what is left of Satan. Well, apparently Satan is supposed to be down in the archives, either held in some sort of confinement area, some sort of confinement uh, as a, an entity in its own right, or the remains of Satan are supposed to be in the, in the Vatican archives because it was deemed as it was the only place on earth that would actually safe to keep such a an evil entity that they could actually could confine it somehow. But um, other things that are down there are perhaps less threatening. There's a selection of grimoires down there as well. I'm saying down there, but it's not necessarily down, it's just a, a way of putting it. As grimoires or, or, or books of spells, particularly one called the Grimoire of Pope Honorius III, which was supposedly the most evil book ever written. And this book requires very, very special handling. It, it's that there's rituals to be gone through before you actually open it and rituals to be gone through actually closing it and sealing it away and it's not just given to any old priest or whatever this, this is pretty senior members of the Catholic Church actually handle this thing now it was always wondered why popes or priests or whatever would get involved with grimoires or books of black magics and Satanism and so forth but it was, it was thought by, by, by the, the laity if you like that if priests could communicate with angels and God and all the rest of it Logically, they should be able to control demons and Satan himself if, if this was the case. So, like I say, this this ultimate grimoire, the, the, the grimoire of Pope Honorius III, I'd say the most evil thing ever written, it's supposed to be down there. And, and with this grimoire, would, could it, would it control demons or could it unleash demons, do you think? Unleash them, I, I would say. It's, it's intended... Well, the purpose of any given grimoire, it's, it's, it's a collection of magic spells. Not necessarily satanic, I might add, but just as a collection of magic or, or magic rituals. But this other one, the, the, the Pope Honorius one, that, that is evil from start to finish. So as a, so evil, in fact, as I said, that, it is, it, it, that there's a special method of, of handling this thing, opening it, 
and closing and sealing away again. In fact, I think it is kept, apart from the other grimoires, it is actually locked away in a special safe vault or whatever, which is, I guess, it's, it's sealed in with religious symbols, crucifixes, whatever. But it's certainly sealed in using a series of prayers and rituals itself. But actually, to get that thing open, you need to have a damn good reason for doing it, because otherwise they wouldn't even consider opening It's far too dangerous. But another thing that, that the, it's the only one of these things that I find a bit, mm, you know, not too sure about. It's a thing called Chronovisor. A Chronovisor, <coughs> um, it's something you can look at uh, and something you can see. Now, all of these things can be found on Google if you check them out. So if, if anybody cares to look up Chronovisor on Google, it looks like a short pillar surmounted by a TV set, basically that's what it is. And this thing, <coughs> sorry, it was de designed by a father in Meti, who was a Jesuit who was also a, a particle physicist. And it's designed to look at the past. But I think they've taken pictures of, of, of the face of Christ as he was being crucified. Very, very important moments in the past from a religious point of view are supposed to be able to be available by using this device, but I'm a bit iffy about it, shall we say, as to whether it exists or not. But another thing, and more useful thing that they have there is, um, bear with me, I'll have a drink. Is definite proof of extraterrestrial life because as with the assumed body or, or, or the, uh, the body of Satan, they have ETs supposedly in the Vatican Archive because always remember that the Vatican has two very powerful um, observatories and they do watch the skies very, very closely. So it makes sense if they're that interested in what's going out out in space, they may well very, very well have definitive proof of the existence of ET, which again... This would be quite acceptable because as far as the Catholic Church is concerned, ETs are all God's creatures. Therefore, they're just as, as, as legitimate. They've got souls and all the rest of it. <coughs> so naturally, we should actually go out of our way to try and make friends with them, if you like, and accept them as being as just one of God's creatures, which seems to be a very open-minded approach, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to get back to the chronovisor. That was Father Arnetti, right? And I was going to say, it seems like they, they were able to uh, view like the uh, events of like the, the crucifixion of Christ, but he yeah. was doing something like he was using sound to manipulate time, right? It seemed like. Yep. Sorry? Yeah, that's not. Sorry. You, you, you're yeah. kind of breaking up, Rob, yeah? Oh, no, that, that was it. I was going to say that the chronovisor was a. Uh, to 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 uh to to they were using he was using sound of like he was using almost like frequency to uh to to manipulate time right or sound that that would make sense yeah that, that would make sense because let's face it everything in the universe exists in, as, as, a, as a frequency so so that, that that would make perfect sense of course it would yeah yeah now speaking of that you did some really in, interesting investigations at Roslyn Chapel with frequency. Oh, yeah, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. for yeah. those people who don't know what Roslyn Chapel is, can you explain what it is and then maybe like the paranormal history behind it or, or maybe sure. they... Sure. Yeah. Well, Roslyn Chapel was built by the Sinclair family back in the 1400s. Now, some people say it was, it was what it appears to be. 
that it is. Uh, a, a, well, it's a, quite a small church, really, as churches go. But it was basically just a place of worship for the Sinclair family. And and that's it. They draw a line under that. But it's far more than that than it always has been. Because my first involvement, I mean, let, let, I'll right, take this from the start. <coughs> Before the 1980s, I knew nothing about about, about Rosalind Chapel. I mean, I'd only been there for six or seven hundred years, but I knew nothing about it. And it exists, it's there about 20 miles from Edinburgh, which is the capital city of Scotland. But it wasn't until the 1980s that I came across it, mentioned a book called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, and it picked, you know, it picked on my interest. I thought, oh, I'll need to have a look at this. So eventually, in the 1990s, uh, I visited it for the first time. And I was pretty taken, you know, pretty amazed by it. Although now it's it's a lot more streamlined. Initially when we went, there was just like a wooden hut outside. You paid your money, you went in, you came back out, end of. But now it's a much more glossy, shiny affair. I mean, there's a proper gift shop, there's a cafe, that there's like a, you can set a, a video, if you like, introduction to the chapel before you go in. All that stuff's been laid on. And that's purely by money that's been raised by people coming in and out of the chapel. I mean, um, th th there's been several films in which the chapel showed up, and um, I've just I've just forgotten the name of the main one. Um, who was in it again? Tom Hanks. Um, what was the name of that film, Rob? Tom Hanks was the star. Where, the, where he was at the big, where he was... Yeah, the, 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 uh, Rosalind Chapel crops up in the film with Tom Hanks. I'm sure it does. I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure which one that is I'm not. Was, not Dan Brown wrote it. Um, Dan Brown, no. Doesn't I can matter. look it up. I can look it, it up. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. I mean, but, but people know what it is. Um, yeah. So we went. Uh, see, initially, then then we went. But when I went back, I went with mediums. Took psychic mediums with me. My wife and I psyched up with psychic mediums. Unknown, in fact, we took four psychic mediums. There was two, two husband and wife teams. The important, what, the important thing was that the two teams didn't know each other, never heard of each other, and none of them had been to Rosalind Chapel before. So my wife took one group round and we took the other group round. And the um, outcome was that they identified that the place was not 100% stable in space-time, as far as they were concerned. It existed... 99.99% here, but 0.01% somewhere else. That's and both, so interesting. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And both groups, both independently of each other, picked up a certain point in this chapel where there was something very strange indeed. And that is, um, there is, they, they called it, they called it an astral doorway. Now, they both picked up in exactly the same place. Once one, one, one pair saw it as like a, a wall of white light. The other one saw it as a column of energy. And it's in what is called the Lady Chapel, more correctly called the Retro Choir. And if you're in the, in the Chapel and you look to the east end of the chapel where the altars are, this is where the Lady Chapel actually is. Excuse me. <coughs> and... Um, there are three altars in the back of the Lady Chapel, and the one on the left-hand side is called the St. Matthew Altar. And when I say altar, it's about chest height. It's maybe about, oh, I don't know, about five feet wide, four feet wide, about chest height, and, and it's in depth. It's not, they're not big, but, but they're, they're obviously altars of sorts. 
And the one on the left-hand side is St. Matthew Altar, because as well as being Roslyn Chapel, its official name is the Collegiate Church of St. Matthew. Okay, rather than what Roslyn Chapel, it does have a proper name. And it is a functioning place of worship, an Episcopalian church. And the whole wedding is there, and they have Sunday services and all the rest of it, so it is a functioning church. But this, this altar, both sets of mediums agreed was something odd. And in fact, one of them said, if they could, they'd come through right now, because she could see hands reaching through this that this asshole doorway wanting to be brought through. Now, I stood with my back against this thing, this this altar. My wife was videoing, she had a video camera going at the time, and was videoing all this. Now, my, my arms, it was really weird, my arms started drifting up from my sides like this, just drifting up. But it just, I couldn't keep them down. Every time I put them down, they come back up again. And in fact, it was almost like there was something under my, the, my heels pushing me up off the floor. And as I stumbled forward, I was getting lifted off the floor by what was coming up, by the energy coming up from this, this astral doorway. So we guessed there must be something very special here. So my wife, I asked my wife, would she, I didn't tell her anything. I didn't, why, I didn't tell her why I was doing this. So I asked her to go and stand with her back against the altar, which she did. And her hands started drifting from her sides. It was really weird to see. So she was picking up on this as well. And the other thing we found was that down in the crypt of the chapel, there's a small room on the left-hand side when you go down the stairs. And it's on your left, a small, this, this small door in a small room. And this is where they kept the drawings and stuff when they were actually building the place. In fact, some of the working drawings are actually engraved into the stonework down in this crypt, and as if when you, you can see them, they're easily, they're easily seen. But in this, in, on the floor, under the floor of this small, this small anteroom, there's a convergence of ley lines. Now I didn't know anything about this, and this is when I first found about them, found out about them. I was asked to stand on this part. I didn't know why they were getting asked to do this. And the, the person said, "Close your eyes. Tell me what you feel." It was like standing on a, a rubber sheet with water moving underneath it. It was really weird. You felt the whole floor was moving under your feet. And this was the action of the ley lines. And if I opened my eyes, I found that the, that the guy that was there, he was standing with a hand at my back and a hand in front of my chest in case I fell over because I was rocking around. And I thought, wow, that, that was quite amazing. And in fact, just earlier on this year, there was a film crew. In fact, David Icke was making a film there and I was asked to go up and help. And... Uh, I got David to go down, and a couple other people went into this room. I didn't tell them what they were going to see or what they were going to feel, and they all felt this this, this strange sort of um, this 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 upheaval. But anyway, getting back to the, this astral doorway, it occurred to us. In fact, one of the mediums said that this is not a church; it's a spiritual machine. It's actually a machine of sorts. But this astral doorway they kept talking about. If you're in the Lady Chapel and you look above you. You'll, you'll, in fact, this is this can all be seen on Google. It's, it's all, the information is all out there. But if Sir William Sinclair actually um, designed this, he must have known perfectly well there was something strange about this altar. Because as far as I'm concerned, there's a portal in that chapel, and the portal can be activated. Because in 2006, we tried to do that using a specific frequency, a set of frequencies. that was called an augmented fourth. And... Um, in the ceiling of the Lady Chapel, there are there are like arcs of cubes, stone cubes, all coming up, and the the, the, the meat on each of the four altars, if you like, all the way down. These arcs come up, 
And all these cubes, each face is engraved with a different pattern. Now, as far as I'm concerned, these are things called Chladni pattern, C-H-L-A-D-N-I, Chladni pattern. And they were designed or cre they were created by, or the, uh, this guy worked out how to produce them, shall I say, and Ernst Schladny, he is actually, I think he's one of the, uh, he was termed as one of the fathers of modern acoustics. And what he did was he got a thin sheet of metal or a thin thin sheet of glass, cramped it, clamped them at one corner so they were immovable, sprinkled fine sand, in his case, on them or, or some sort of fine powder, and bowed them with a violin bow. And depending on the note that was being struck, these things took up a pattern. So it's believed that, um, that the stone cubes are musical notes created using this method. Because don't forget, William Sinclair, William Sinclair was not a stupid man. He knew exactly what he was doing when he built this chapel. So we worked out, a guy, worked with a guy called Bill Downey, who's a, who's a professional musician. And we worked out how to actually reproduce these things. And Bill came up with this particular this particular chord, which is, of course, it's not just musical notes, it's frequencies. Okay, each, each musical note is a frequency. So I recorded a set of these frequencies down on a, on a laptop, a, a, whole, a whole series of these frequencies. And we went up to the chapel in 2006 this is the last time we were allowed to do this because the, the, the trustees just wouldn't let you do this sort of thing now. They just say, no, no, that this isn't on. You can't come in and do this. I suspect because they're afraid of what might happen. Anyway, we went in and had the laptop, and there was maybe half a dozen of us there. And one of the guys was an acoustic therapist, and he went down into the crypt. Now, he didn't know, we didn't know he had done this. We were messing around with these frequencies, just waiting to see what was going to happen. And lo and behold, we hear this noise or this, this tone coming from the crypt. And the guy is there in the crypt, he's actually toning, okay, creating with his with his mouth, with his voice, creating tones. So we're upstairs and we can hear these two tones start and went, oh. Then all of a sudden, right out of the blue, a third tone kicked off. No, this wasn't us, this was the chapel itself was creating another tone, a harmonic on its own, based on the two harmonics or the two tones we were creating. And we thought, oh, that, that's that's amazing. Then a few seconds later, another tone kicked off. So the chapel is now creating two tones on its own based on the on, on the frequencies that we are generating and this guy down the stairs is generating. Now, he knew nothing about this because he wasn't upstairs. He couldn't hear it. But the second he stopped toning down the stairs, the two, if you like, complementary tones just went cut. They just stopped immediately. And we're, oh, that was unusual. Anyway. Getting back to the getting back to this portal. One of the mediums took a walk over to the altar where we reckoned this thing was. It was only maybe ten feet away from us. And um, she said, "Oh, it's getting really cold here." And she was standing with her back to the altar, and she said to me, "Come on, Brian, come across. You stand in front of me." So I did. And lo and behold, the temperature just went plummet, went straight down. Now, it's never warm at any time in that chapel, but this this was seriously bone-chilling cold. In fact, it was so localised, you could put your arms out from the sides like that, and it was like passing through a barrier. You could feel the warmth on the outside of the barrier, and when you came back in, you could feel it infinitely colder inside the barrier, 
like it, something was going on inside the inside the actual um, the confines of, of of the of the portal, as if something was starting to activate. So we didn't really know what to make of this. So we walked away, and the tone's still going from from the laptop. Then all of a sudden, one of the guys said, "Oh, something's happening on the altar." So I turned around, and the picture I have is, is unfortunately, it's a little bit blurred because I took it while I was moving. Didn't want to miss this. And I took this photograph of the actual um, of the of the front of the altar. Now there's two crosses on it, bit large crosses, like you know, top to bottom. And in the middle of it is what they call the engrailed cross of the Sinclair family. And it's quite, it's maybe about yay sized, about maybe ten inches across, and it's br brightly illuminated as if it's, there's a light shining on it. Now, this wasn't coming from the camera. Because it, the, the flash wasn't on, and the flash wouldn't have done that anyway. The flash would have illuminated the whole the whole altar, not just this tiny little bit in it. It was like a powerful flashlight was being shone on it, but there was no flashlight there because the flashlight would it would have it would able to spread out as well. You wouldn't have got this tightly controlled beam. So that was that was when the people from the the the, the, the uh, if you like the the supervisors came in. We had to stop it. Yeah, we just had to stop it because we're starting to say, well, what's going to happen now? Because we honestly didn't, we didn't know what to expect. We were looking for anything. But apparently that this portal does react to sound and it is a genuine portal. But um, we've never been allowed back in to actually test these theories because they just won't let us do it. Simple as that. But uh, do you think it's because of what, the way that it's positioned on the on, like? Is you think they built these chapels on ley lines? Is that kind of what you were saying? I don't know if that's just an accident, but I suspect not, because it wasn't built there for fun, and no carving is in that chapel unless Sir William Sinclair gave his express permission. Yes, carve that. That's what have because most of the carvings were actually done in, in wood. They were actually carved in the wood to actually to get what he wanted. So that whole chapel is there at his behest. He paid for it, and every every single carving in it was at his instruction. So it's all, I'm all, I'm pretty sure that he knew that that portal was there because he built it that way. Maybe it's maybe it's tapping into the power of the ley lines. I'm not going to say I don't know. I honestly God don't know. I'm not going to say it does because I don't know. It yeah. could. But the it, thing is, I'm pretty sure that he created that as a doorway to hide something. I think he concealed something at the back, you know, in, in this portal, on the other side of this portal, that could only, but he also left the key, if you like, in, in, in the, the, the frequencies that are, that are picked out on these stone cubes in, in, the, in, the, in the ceiling of the, of, the, um, the, 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 of the Lady Chapel. So I'm pretty sure that he also, as he left the key, that if anybody could open it, they could find it what he left there. Because it must be pretty important if he left it in such a in such a manner that to, to, the, the conventional human being could never ever get it. Unless yeah. he knows what they were doing. That's so interesting. That's that's uh I, I can't. Uh, I'd love to see that place. Like uh, one one more thing that we wanted to go over. Well, there's there's actually two things I wanted to go over. I wanted to go over plague ghosts. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. We talked about that. Or, or, Mm. Beg your pardon, just a little drink to get my throat steady. Play ghosts, yep. This this was to do with COVID nineteen. You know when this was raging, people were dying all over the place. Now the city of New York, obviously, it's a, a huge city, and people have got to get buried when they die. Clearly, so Harp Island is in the Bronx area of New York. It's in the Hudson, 
and it can only be visited by boat, well, officially by boat, and it's got to be by special arrangement. Now, it's a sort of a potter's field, and if anyone's not sure of what that means, the potter's field was where, where, where the the indigent the, the dead had to be buried. That is, people who couldn't afford the, the cost of a funeral or if, if, if their families couldn't afford to bury them. The state had to bury them, the city had to bury them. And it was in these potter's fields, not very fancy, nothing, nothing great about it. They just buried them. And Hart Island was used for that very, very purpose. Now, Hart Island was all, because of its position, it was used as a prison for, um, for, for people that were captured during the American Civil War. They were all shipped up from the south and, and imprisoned there. Hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds, many of them died and are buried on the island. It was used as, as a psychiatric hospital, a female psychiatric hospital. It was used for all sorts of purposes where people, you know, it, it was out the road and it wasn't going to interfere with, with people on the mainland, if you like. And it is abundantly haunted, apparently. But the thing is that the ghosts that are seen there tend to blend with the mists that often roll in off the, off the Hudson River. And whenever they're seen or confronted, these ghosts just vanish. But it's not the things that are con actually confronted on Hart Island itself. Anyone who has been there, or people who have been there, have taken something home with them. They've woken up screaming in the night where they're sure that there's stuff in the bedroom with them that has been come with them from Hart Island. But as far as I know, no one's been permanently damaged or hurt by this, and they tend to, they, they tend to dissipate and go away. But to, yeah, the Hart Island is, is a particular example of, of and of course, many, many people died of COVID and were buried, and are buried on Hart Island. Many in mass graves. I mean, there's nothing pretty about this. They just dig these big holes and bury people. And the problem is that there's so many people buried on there that the bones keep percolating to the surface. They can't do anything else. That they will do this. Now, I mentioned Hart Island, but and New York City, but this also happens in Scotland, up in Edinburgh. There's um, Friars Church. A very famous churchyard. There's a little statue outside of Greyfriars Bobby, and if you ever heard a little terrier dog, and its nose is all shiny because people rub it for good luck and all the rest of it. But in in uh, this churchyard, there is something called the Covenanters Prison. Now we carried out a series of investigations into claims of poltergeist attacks that were taking place in this Covenanters Prison. Now the whole the whole area of, of the Greyfriars Churchyard. As much the same as Hart Island because it was designed, I think, for about 5,000 bodies. But I reckon there's half a million people buried in there because it's been around a long, long time. And these, and because I know this for a fact that I have seen a human thigh bone on the surface of the, of the ground in the Covenanters prison. And, the, and we told the guy that had let us in about it, I said, oh yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, get around, we'll, we'll bury it with all due deference and all the rest. Whether they do or not, it's another matter. But they actually bury these bones in the, or rebury them on a regular basis. But the Covenanters prison, it was, they kept hundreds of people locked up in this place. It, it's not prison, it's not even got a roof. It's just a, a strip of ground in, in, in the actual churchyard. It's maybe about 100 metres long, about 10, 15 metres wide. On both sides, it's lined with, with mausoleums. But the poltergeist involved in this was it's supposed to be called the Mackenzie poltergeist. And Mackenzie, he was a judge who actually sent the... Uh, took a great pleasure in that, I might add, enjoyed sending the um, Covenanters to, to, to the gallows because he was a hanging judge, simple as that. And 
it is thought that, well, not thought that, but people who go on the ghost tours, I mean, most cities have their ghost tours. And Edinburgh is probably one of the haunted cities on the planet. And it has its ghost tours that end up invariably in the Covenanters' prison. And people were getting attacked in there. There was one woman in particular got knocked to the ground. She was, her face was scratched. She thought she was getting strangled. And it's been oh blamed on... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been blamed on Bloody Mackenzie, you know, this, 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 this hanging judge. Because his mausoleum is, is not in the Covenanters' prison, but it's maybe about 25 metres to one side of it. it it's, it's quite a strange-looking place. If you, if you Google Bloody Mackenzie Mausoleum, uh, it will actually show you this place because it's a really grim, it's not huge, but it's a grim-looking you know, small building with, with, with a domed roof. And if you look through the doors, I mean, there's barred doors you can actually see inside because I, I lowered the camera and took a photograph of this, that um, on the floor of it, that there's like a, a grating and this lays, this like lays down, this leads down into the actual vault underneath. Well, the, the, the coffins aren't buried in earth. They're not. They're not. You know, under the ground. They're actually laid out on shelves. You know, on stone shelves. And it, it's quite. It's quite a horrible place. But yeah, his ghost or his poltergeist is supposed to be what was attacking the people in, in, in the actual chapel. But that's two examples of of, of plague ghosts because Scotland and, and the UK in general, in the time of the Black Plague, there was thousands of people. I mean, thousands and thousands of people died all over the place. Millions, in fact. And there was no exception in, in, up in, in, in Scotland here, and many thousands died in Edinburgh. And a lot of them were buried in uh, the actual churchyard itself. And they would contribute to, to, the, to the, the half million or so that are buried there. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. The, the, the one last thing I wanted to ask you about was the creature of Montauk, if you could, you could get into that a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well... You've got to keep an open mind on the claims that are made for Montauk. But um, do you think? Thing, I have a question. Do you think the creature of Montauk was like a spinoff of the Montauk experiment? Like the yeah, the Mont guaranteed. Uh, yeah, Rob, yeah, Robert. I say that's a guaranteed. That some of the stuff that we're doing, and you know, there was the Montauk chair, for example. I think they called it. And this this was a device that the sat people in it. But they didn't project them physically in time. I think their consciousness was actually directed in time because from what I can make out, or as far as I can understand, the only way we will ever travel in time, if it's ever possible, will not be in a physical manner. It will be your consciousness will be, if you like, encapsulated and sent somewhere. I think that that would make sense. That would make perfect sense because it's not it's not corporal. It, it's, it's an electronic signal, if you like, because consciousness, it, it, because we are, if you like, biologic chemical biological computers, that's what our brains are when you think about it. And um, consciousness is, is, if you like, electrical in nature, bioelectrical. So I'm pretty sure that if we can be sent away in time or travel in time, it'll be by this. But I think the Montauk monster probably got attracted by some experiment they were doing on this. It locked in on it and it pulled itself in and it, it dumped itself, if you like, in Montauk. And they couldn't get rid of it, and they didn't know what to do with it. So it's just, I think they just pretty well had to leave it to do what it was going to do itself, I guess. Because mm -hmm. uh, it's still there. I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely certain it's still there, because they couldn't get rid of it. And it couldn't go back, so it's stuck there. Wow, wow. That's so interesting. Um, Alan, well, the one last thing I wanted to ask you about is, what are your thoughts on the Ark of the Covenant? Because I know you wrote about that, too. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's one of the chapters in the book. I think the Ark of the Covenant 
by nature of what it is, how it's constructed, it's actually constructed like a capacitor, you know. And I'm pretty sure it's an electrical device. And I'm pretty sure it can store up, it can it can build up a charge because people have been damaged, been killed by by not obeying the rules that, that, that go with the way that you're supposed to handle the Ark of the Covenant. But I also think it was something else. I think it was a communications device. And I think it was designed to communicate with, if you like, with God, you know. So, um, yeah, that is entirely possible. The Ark of the Covenant itself is a weapon, it's a communications device, and it's designed to communicate with God, whatever, whatever God is, because it, there is no definitive answer on that at all, that perhaps God's an ET. You know, who knows? We really don't know. I mean, it's because it becomes arguable that Jesus was an ET. You could, you could argue that, I suppose. Angels are ETs. In other, in other words, they come from up there, and all I'm saying up there, <laughs> that's the old concept of heavens above and hells below. But they could be coming from the coming from the side. They could come from other dimensions and other realities. So I'm pretty sure that, that, that what the Ark of the Covenant is is, in fact, a, a communications device of sorts. You know what? That, I just never thought about that. That's a good idea, that, 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 that maybe it was given to us by, like, an ET race or mm. something to communicate mm. with them, because maybe... Mm. The, the thing that we think is God, like you said, is really an ET, and it's like that was the the, the means of communication it gave to, uh, to to communicate, right? It would certainly make sense if that was the case, Rob, because there's no other way you could actually. I mean, we people can by convention you pray and and you hope your your prayers are heard and all the rest of it, but the whole thing is what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it's supposed to be in, in a small church, and in, in, I'm trying to remember where it is now. It's in Africa someplace. Um, the, the name just went. It's supposed to be that it kept in a small church. In and Ethiopia, right? In Ethiopia, that's correct. Thank you, Rob. It's in Ethiopia, and it's guarded 24 hours a day by one man, and he is bonded to that for life. He never leaves that chapel, and he spends the whole of his life there. And when he is due to or he's died, they appoint someone else, and they take over. And when that guy dies, they, that's their job. They look after this Ark of the Covenant for the rest of their lives. But no one's ever actually seen it, because it's kept inside in a sort of holy of holies. And no one's permitted to see it, except the guy who actually looks after it. Wow. Wow. That's, in that's so interesting. Like, um, well, uh, I was going to say, uh, I don't have any other questions for you. Um, uh, uh, thank you for doing this. And can you tell everybody where they can find the book and um, in your website or anything like that? Oh, yeah. The book itself, which is, I say, is Book of Secrets, Aliens, Ghosts, and Ancient Mysteries. It's published by Flying Disc Press, and it's available on Amazon. And uh, I am Brian Allen. So if you, if you type in my name along with the title of the book, that will take you straight to it on Amazon. And, uh, yeah, it's also available as a Kindle as well, if anybody's interested. But, but most people usually take it as a, as a, as a paperback, which is fine. And, but, and yeah. they made an audio book out of this too, right? There is that. that well, that's a Kindle. Sorry, yeah, the Kindle audio book. Sorry, beg your pardon. But when I say Kindle, that's what I mean as an audio book. It's available as an audio book as well. And like I say, it, it was a labor of love to write this thing. It was my 14th book. And it's a fair chance it'll be my last one. I don't know. I don't have the energy to do this stuff anymore. But um, yeah, it's, it was. I thoroughly enjoyed doing it because I'd all this this material lying about, and I realised when I looked at it, I thought I could put this all together because it's it's thematic. It, it works in themes. So I decided to do that, and 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 the result was, as I say, um, book of secrets. It's also available, I might add, as as a, as a DVD. 
the reality entertainment based in California. They, 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 they actually, I sent the guy, a guy called Warren Croyle, who owns it, who owns the business. I said, look, I've, I've done scripts for him in the past, and I said, look, I've got this this manuscript. Would you be interested? So I sent it to him, and Warren had a look. I said, look, we don't do books, but he said, I like some of the stuff. I like some of the chapters in it. Well, they have produced a DVD called Book of Secrets: Aliens, Ghosts, and Ancient Mysteries. And um, yeah, it, it's it, and they, they took some of the chapters out of it and, and made it into this DVD. So it's available as a book and a DVD. Oh wow, that's awesome. Um, well, thank you so much again, and uh, it was real nice uh, doing another podcast with you, and we'll have to do it again in the future. You're more than welcome, Rob. It's always a pleasure talking to you, man. Always a pleasure. <laughs>